All right, 1 Kings chapter 2, 1 Kings chapter 2. The whole theme of 1 Kings is covenants and character, and we've been looking a little bit more at the covenant side of things than the character, but tonight we're definitely going to be focusing on some characters. In David's final charge to Solomon at the beginning of the chapter, he warned his son to keep an eye on a couple people, on Joab and Shimei in particular. In addition to that, Solomon's already been keeping his eye on Adonijah, his brother, his half-brother, who's tried to take the throne from him. All three of these individuals, Joab, Shimei, and Adonijah, had been shown mercy when they should have been put to death. But all three are going to end up executed for new crimes before the chapter is over. Spoilers. This brings up an important question, though. Why is it that we still cross the king's boundaries after we've been shown great mercy? It's a great question. Why do we often act like Joab and Shimei and Adonijah? What needs to change so I stop acting like them? And so I'm sure there's more here, but as I was going through this, I found seven reasons why they cross these lines, and hopefully those will speak to our hearts. So chapter 2, we begin in verse 13. At the end of verse 12, it mentions Solomon is now, his dad is dead, David is gone. He is now established in his throne. Verse 13, it says, And Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And she said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. He said, Moreover, I have somewhat to say unto you. And she said, Say on. Bathsheba is understandably apprehensive when Adonijah comes calling for a visit. Uh, The man had plotted to kill her and her son Solomon. So, There's no small talk here. There's no tea and crumpets. There's no, hey, how are things going? She demands immediately that he state his intentions. And he says, I'm here. I'm not here to cause trouble. I'm here to make a business proposal. And she says, say on, which means I'm listening. (laughs) But as soon as Adonijah opens his mouth to explain, we see the first reason why change can be difficult in our lives sometimes, and it's arrogance. Verse 15, he said, you know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel set their faces on me that I should reign. Howbeit, the kingdom is turned about and has become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. And so now I ask one petition of you and do not deny me. And she said unto him, say on. He starts off here and he reminds Bathsheba of what he almost had. He says, you know, which is your smart Bathsheba, You knew where things were headed politically. You know that the kingdom was mine, or literally in the Hebrew, you know that to me fell the kingdom. In other words, he's he's speaking of this idea that I'm the oldest surviving son of David. I should have been king. You know that this is how that should have worked. And then he also adds to this, and you know that all Israel set their faces on me, or literally on me, Israel had set their eyes. Again, these words on me are emphatic in both of these parts of the sentence. Adonijah was absolutely convinced that the throne was his by right of being the oldest surviving son of David, and he was absolutely convinced that all Israel was poised to look at him as their new leader. Despite the fact that the Lord stopped this from happening, Adonijah holds firm to his belief that he was in the right, that he deserved this. And you know, When you and I persist in the arrogance of our own ideas, we will always struggle to change. We're going to struggle to change. 
Because no matter how much I might see a need to change and even might want to do what God says, arrogance leads to self-deception. In Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 16, there's an interesting verse here where we see this. Jeremiah says, and the Lord speaking through him, he says, your awesomeness has deceived you. In other words, just you think you're so awesome. Your awesomeness has deceived you and the pride of your heart. O you that dwell in the clefts of the rock that hold the height of the hill, though you should make your nest as high as the eagle, I will bring you down from there, says the Lord. We know from other scriptures that the Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I can come to the Lord and say, Lord, I know I need to change, or I can hear something, a message, or read my Bible and see an area needs to change. But if I persist in the arrogance of my own ideas, God's going to resist me. I'm not going to end up changing. We see this exemplified in Luke 18, 11, and 12, where Jesus spoke a parable about two men who went into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not as other men are, not extortioners or unjust or adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice in the week and I give tithes of all that I possess. There was an arrogance of his own ideas that kept this Pharisee in the parable from really getting closer to the Lord. It's interesting, we we look at this self-deception that Adonijah's experienced. He says, "This, this was my right. Really? On what basis? God had never, ever established in Israel that the throne would go to the eldest surviving son of the previous king. Never. In the book of Deuteronomy, when God set up the rules for how a king would be picked in Israel, in Deuteronomy 18, he said this. He said, when you are coming to the land which the Lord your God gives you, this is Deuteronomy 18, 14, and 15. When you come into the land which the Lord your God gives you and shall possess it, and you shall dwell therein and say, I will set a king over me like as all the nations that are about me. When you say that, I will set a king, he goes, you shall in any wise set him king over you whom the Lord your God shall choose. From the very beginning, God set it up that I pick the kings, not you. I pick who's king, not you. But this is where self-deception had gotten involved. Was that an a Middle Eastern cultural thing that the oldest son took the throne after the king died? Yes, but it wasn't a biblical idea, and therefore it wasn't an Israeli idea. He had self-deceived himself. There was self-deception because of his arrogance. In addition to this, only a select group had attended Adonijah's private coronation ceremony. And just because he had Joab and one of the high priests on his side did not constitute the entire nation having their eyes on him. If you are struggling to see change in your life, one of the things you need to ask yourself is, where are you being arrogant? Lord, am I being arrogant? Lord, where have maybe I deceived myself? And then you and I need to humble ourselves so that we can see things through God's eyes instead of our own eyes. Well, after Adonijah reminds her of what he almost had, he reminds her of what he had lost. He says, how be it? (laughs) This is where the pity party begins. I had it, but then I lost it. How be it? The kingdom is turned about and has become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. (laughs) Adonijah, he plays the part of a disappointed saintly man who yields to God's plan, but who is distraught because of where God's plan has left him. I'm the odd man out. 
And this is the second reason change will be a struggle for us. It's when we develop a victim mentality. When I begin to decide that everything bad in my life is everyone else's fault, including God's, when I decide that, I will struggle to change. When I come to God with my pity parties, he goes to Bathsheba. If he went to the Lord, he got a different answer. Because when I go to the Lord with my pity party, the Lord's like, hey, let's, uh, instead of talking about everybody else, let's talk about you. Every time. Every time. You see, Adonijah doesn't even see the opportunity that God's placed in front of him. He should be dead right now. Solomon should have executed him, but he's still alive despite his attempt to seize the throne and kill the man who currently reigns. He's still in an influential and prosperous position. His life is far from miserable, not even close. And if I want to see change in my life, I need to see the opportunities I do have rather than wallow in self-pity for what I do not have. Love for God is always the the motivation for obedience, right? We love him because he first loved us, but Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So understanding God's love for me and then loving him back is always the motivation for obedience. There can be other motivations for obedience. They just don't work. Like you can be motivated by, well, I don't want to go to hell. That's fine, but that's not going to be the motivator that's going to change your life. You might fix some externals, but that will never fix in here. You can have external motivators of other people. I don't want them to think I'm this or that. But again, it doesn't change anything in here and therefore doesn't bring about any real change. What brings about change is a love for the Lord. I want to please Him. I want to honor Him. I want to obey Him. But there will be no love for God when I believe He's been unfair to me. You won't. I won't have a love for God when I think God's been unfair to me, that I've gotten the raw deal. I remember, and I realize this is a carnal thing, and I confess to you, I can be a carnal man sometimes. But when we first planted the church in Sanford, and man, three years in, I think we had, what, like 12 people? Maybe not even that much. I think it might have been less than that. (laughs) I think it might have been two people or three people. But all the time, I would go to pastor's meetings and other guys would be talking about all the great things God was doing. And there'd be times even you'd hear, well, yeah, we got a new building, or yeah, you know, we just did this outreach and 40 people got saved. You'd, in your heart, be like, must be nice. Must be nice. Yeah. What's God doing in your life, Will? Nothing. Nothing. I'm not his special kid. Not like you. Struggle with all those carnal thoughts and ideas about being used to the Lord. I remember one day the Lord just had to be like, Will, what is upsetting you so much? You have a wife who loves you. At that point in time, I think we had one child and he was healthy and safe. You've got a job, you've got food, you've got the few people that are here, they love coming. So, what's your problem? Well, it's not how I thought it would go okay, well, what if I called you to go to some town out in the Midwest that only has 100 people? And what if you just ministered to 15 people for 60 years? What if I asked you to do that? Would you go? Would you do it? 
or only if I promised you, yes, by this time period, you'll have this many congregants, and this will be your salary, and this is how, how good you'll feel about yourself. And I remember when the it, realization hit me, like, they always use the phrase, nice guys finish last, right? And that was me, right? I was like the guy in high school, treated all the girls nicely, but never got a date. That's how it was. My own wife, when she first met me, thought I was a twerp. <laughs> Verbatim. That's not me exaggerating. Will, he's a twerp. But I was the guy who always was the good friend. You know, you can let that build up over time. You can let that sit there over time. I'm always second place, or I'm always third, or I always get the leftovers. I don't ever experience all the other things everybody else experiences. It is really difficult to experience true change in your life when you're always looking for disappointment, when you just don't believe God's good. And I had to get to a place at that point in my life where it's like, well, you have everything a man could ever ask for. If you are struggling to see change in your life, you need to see the opportunities you do have rather than wallow in the self-pity for what you don't have. Now, Adonijah started this conversation by flattering Bathsheba's political awareness, but by what he says next, he shows that he actually thinks she's a fool. He says to her in verse 16, I had this and I lost it, now I got nothing. And so he says to her, and now I ask one petition of you. I just want one thing. My life stinks, so I just want one thing. Just one thing to make it better. Don't deny me. Don't leave me in this awful situation, Bathsheba. You owe me something after all you took from me. And she says to him, say on, I'm listening. It is my personal belief, maybe completely wrong, so this is not worth a whole lot. It is my personal belief, though, that whatever you might think about Bathsheba, good or bad, I do not believe that she was the brightest light bulb. I don't believe she was. I do believe she became a very spiritual woman. But I don't believe, like, with just life stuff, that she was probably, she was probably savvy. At the very least, she's not politically savvy. Because if you remember way back when Adonijah was having, way back in chapter 1, when Adonijah was having his private coronation ceremony, Nathan had to tell her, don't you realize what this means for you and Solomon? He had to tell her that. Now, there's another possibility, and I've seen this too. It's not maybe that Bathsheba wasn't savvy. It's just possible that Bathsheba simply thought the best about people. That's possible too. It's not a bad thing to be naive in some ways. Maybe that's even how she fell for David. Whatever the reason, she's moved enough by Adonijah's pity party that she says, I'm listening. She permits him to make a request. Someone with more savvy would have heard his sap story and turned him away. Well, what does Adonijah request from her? Something very dangerous, verse 17. And he said, Speak, I pray you, unto Solomon the king, for he will not say you no. Speak unto him that he give me Abishag the Shunammite to wife. He won't deny a request from his own mother. Ask him if 
he can give me Abishag to be my wife. Now, Remember when he started First Kings with that really weird story about the leadership, David's like political cabinet going, we need to find a girl to lay next to David to keep him warm. It's one of those weird stories in the Bible. You go, why is this here? The reason it's here is because she becomes a piece, even though she does nothing. She's not involved in the politics of this. She becomes a very important political piece though. The writer introduces us to her in first chapter one, because even though she doesn't uh, do anything of consequence in the narrative, she plays an important role in the drama of this chapter. At face value, this request might seem innocent. David never slept with her, and perhaps during her time there, Adonijah fell in love with her. No big deal, right? (laughs) No, that's a very big deal, and this is a very dangerous request. Because despite the failure of Adonijah's first conspiracy, this shows he is still plotting for the throne In Eastern nations, it was customary for a successor to add the previous king's harem or wives to his own harem. If you remember, when Absalom took the throne from David, Ahithophel said, go sleep with David's harem on top of the palace so all can see, and everyone knows there's no return from this. You and David aren't going to make up and, and come to peaceful terms. You're in this for the long haul. Go sleep with his wives. Absalom did. Well, if Adonijah succeeded in this request, he would, by cultural standards, have a claim to the throne. He would be able to say, not only am I the oldest of David's sons, but one of his concubines is my wife. And thereby, he might be able to start raising support to take the throne. And this is the third reason that I might struggle to change. I might struggle to change when I have an unhealthy view of mercy when I have an unhealthy view of mercy. Instead of looking at my past escapes from consequences as God's mercy, I can begin to persist in thinking that I can still fool around with the wrong things without getting burned. Let me ask you a question. It's an important one. How many foolish decisions does it take to ruin a person's life? One. One. There is no quota that has to be met where life says, Welp, no mercy for you this time. There is no quota where even God will say, Welp, no mercy for you this time. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, the Bible tells us, it warns us. It says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. That is the general principle of how life works. Now, God is just good. He is just merciful. And there are many times that we operate by that principle and the Lord shows us mercy. But God never owes us that. And when we begin to look at the times where we go, you know, got out of that mess, you know, thanks, Lord. And we begin to think of it, though, as just, well, that's how life works. We begin to have this unhealthy view of mercy that because his mercies are new every morning, we can just use that grace and mercy as a license to sin. And when we begin developing that mindset towards mercy, we can begin to think that we're indestructible, not because it's the Lord who's in charge, but indestructible because we think, well, we just, nothing can happen to me. I think of in the Bible, numerous lives that just ended 
Like think of King Josiah. The Bible tells us he was like one of the best kings ever. But like at the very end of when we get to 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and you get to his death, it's not like this thing and Josiah lived a long life and served the Lord and blah, 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 blah. All it took was one proud decision, one dumb decision. And he's a dead man. The Lord warned him, said, Josiah, because what happened was is Egypt and Babylon were squabbling. And Pharaoh Necho comes up, not Necho, I don't remember which one it is. I think it's Hophni. But one of the pharaohs comes up and he's basically moving through Israeli territory to go fight the king of Babylon. And so anytime you got, if Canada all of a sudden marched all their mounties into the United States, we wouldn't just be like, yeah, walk on through. We'd want to know what they're doing, right? And that's what Josiah does. He takes the army out there and he's like, what are you doing coming through our territory? And the Pharaoh says, I have no problem with you. I'm going to fight the king of Babylon and the Lord has told you, don't get in my way. And Josiah's like, oh yeah? And then he dies in the battle. That's it. It's over. And you think to yourself, it's a silly thought, but all of a sudden he's like, oh, I'm in heaven. And you know, I don't know about you, but if I'd be up in heaven, I'd be like, really? You had the biggest revival that Israel had ever seen under your reign, and you blow it all for this? We have stories of that in Scripture. All it takes is one. Now, the solution to that problem, when you kind of have this wrong view of mercy, the solution is to become someone who fears the Lord. It's to say, Lord, you're God, not me. You're the one who's immortal, not me. I'm very fragile and very frail, and I don't want to abuse the mercy and grace that you've shown me. That's the starting point. The Bible tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? So we want to keep ourselves from making bad decisions. The starting point for wise decision-making is developing a healthy fear of the Lord. Now, Adonijah has never struck me as a God-fearing man, and so he makes this poor decision, very risky decision. But at first, it seems like he's successful. Look at her response in verse 18. And Bathsheba said, well, which means that's agreeable to me. I will go speak to the king for you. Now, some suggest Bathsheba knew what Adonijah was plotting and went along with it because she thought, this will get rid of this dude. And maybe she was. Maybe she's way more politically savvy than we give her credit for. But I believe how she acts as this plays out and Solomon's response shows she didn't realize what Adonijah was trying to do. Look at verse 19. Bathsheba therefore went unto King Solomon to speak unto him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed himself unto her and sat down on his throne and caused a seat to be set for the king's mother. And she sat on his right hand. Then she said, I desire one small petition of you. I pray you, say me not no. And the king said unto her, ask on, my mother, for I will not say to you no. Here we see the logic behind Adonijah's plan. Solomon has a profound respect for his mother here. I guarantee you there was no other person in Israel he was bound down to. And yet he leaves his throne, bows down to his mother, a credible action of respect, and then seats her at his own right hand and says, Mom, whatever you want, it's yours. The position of queen mother became an honored one with incredibly great influence in the nation of Israel. Queen mother was something that we're going to see throughout this. It'll mention every time who the queen mother was when you get to the next king. 
because they just had great influence in Israeli society. That was good sometimes when they were a godly woman, but often it was not good when they weren't. It is possible, however, that this tradition started of honoring the queen mother and giving her quite a bit of influence started with how Solomon treated his mom. But with formalities out of the way, finally, Bathsheba makes her request for Adonijah, and she says, it's a small thing, it's a trifling, insignificant request, and, you know, she says, don't tell me no, and he goes, Mom, I'm not going to tell you no. That, by the way, is always a poor choice of words when you don't know what someone's going to ask you because he's going to have to go back on it when he actually hears the request. So verse 21, and she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah your brother to wife. And King Solomon answered and said unto his mother, and why do you ask for Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my elder brother, even for him and for Abiathar the priest and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. His reaction is not happy. The first part, why? Why are you asking me this? It's almost as if his shock at her request makes him wonder if she's conspiring against him. Why would you ask such a thing for someone who tried to kill us? Now, while I'm speculating there, it is much more likely that he's just shocked that she fell for such a plot because he explains what's really going on next. He says, why don't you just ask for him the kingdom too? For he is my elder brother. Don't you understand? He already has one argument that many people will consider valid that I cannot contest. I am not the eldest brother. I am not the eldest son of David. In the eyes of many people culturally, he should be here and I shouldn't. And now you want to give him another leg to stand on? And then I love what he says here. No, not just him. <laughs> Don't just ask it for him. Even for Abiathar the priest and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. Solomon realizes this, this isn't Adonijah's plot because there's no way Adonijah would be so bold solo here. The whole gang is in on it, still conspiring to take the throne even though they're doing it more subtly this time. And so... Solomon does deny his mother's request, and he swears an oath instead. Verse 23, then King Solomon swear by the Lord, saying, God do so to me, and more also if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. That's a pretty heavy saying. Why, Why take a solemn oath to the Lord? Why not just pronounce his execution? I think the reason that Solomon swears an oath that he's going to take this action, that he's going to execute Adonijah, is because David warned him this day would come. He told him, he said, Joab will step over the line again. He's done it multiple times, and he'll do it again. And when he does, son, don't be too weak to deal with it like I was. What Solomon's about to do here could start a civil war, especially if the plot goes deeper than he hopes. If Adonijah actually already has more support, and he's looking for this to kind of be the final nail into his plan, the final piece of his plan this could start a civil war. There was also the risk that in executing Adonijah, Joab might flee and then turn the army against him. Much is at stake. But by swearing this oath, Solomon steals himself to handle it correctly. And in his oath, he says, God do so to me and more also. In other words, God strike me dead if I don't do justice to this man. God do to me what these guys deserve if I fail to do my duty toward Adonijah this time. 
You see, Solomon's duty should have been to execute Adonijah for what he did in the past by rebelling against his father, rebelling against the Lord. But Solomon had shown mercy. And so now Solomon decrees that he will do his job as the king, and then he does it. Verse 24, now therefore, as the Lord lives, which has established me and set me on the throne of David, my father, and who has made me a house as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death this day. And so King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he fell upon him that he died. That's it. Remember the question I asked earlier? How many poor decisions does it take to ruin a life? Just like that, Adonijah's life is snuffed out. He woke up that morning with a plan, and he ended that morning in a grave. That's not how any of us wake up in the morning, right? None of us wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to end up killing myself today with these decisions, these decisions I'm making that I think will actually further my life and career. I'm going to end up in a grave today. But it happens, doesn't it? There was no opportunity for Adonijah to have self-pity or to stew in his arrogance because he still believes he's right. Not this time. In fact, none of that matters now. He's dead. If you are harboring arrogance or a victim mentality or self-pity or the foolish notion that you won't get caught or you won't get burned, stop, please. God loves you, and He has a good plan for your life. He had a good plan for Adonijah. And if you will humble yourself, recognize His mercy that He is, and that you deserve nothing more. And if you decide to fear Him, you can change. Now, two other people played with fire alongside Adonijah. Now Solomon deals with them. Verse 26, and unto Abiathar the priest said the king, get you to Anathoth, unto your own fields, for you are worthy of death. But I will not at this time put you to death because you bear the ark of the Lord God before David my father and because you have been afflicted and all wherein my father was afflicted. Abiathar was the high priest who had supported Adonijah's first attempt to take the throne. It says here, get you to Anathoth. Anathoth was one of the four cities in the region of Benjamin that was allocated to Aaron's descendants. Many years later, Anathoth was, will be more better known because it was Jeremiah the prophet's hometown. That's where he's from. Abiathar's family would live there, supplementing their income with the fields assigned to his family. Sending him to join them meant he would have to earn his living like every other man now. No more would he be allowed to represent the Lord to God's people. And why does Solomon do this instead of executing him for attempted treason? He tells us. He goes, you lost your own father to Saul's jealous paranoia. You were on the run with my dad just like he was on the run. Your life was hunted by Saul, just like my dad was, and you never bailed on him. You traveled with him, even though it made you live in caves and all sorts of other things, and you were there for him when he needed to seek the Lord. He goes, I'm not going to kill you, but I am going to banish you. Verse 27, so Solomon thrust out means he banished Abiathar from being priest unto the Lord. And then the Bible explains to us why it happened this way, that he might fulfill, that Solomon would be the fulfillment of a prophecy that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which he spoke concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. See this prophecy? You've got to go all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 2 in verses 30 through 36. 
God had sent a prophet to speak to Eli, to confront him about his sin of not dealing with his sons. And because he wouldn't repent, he says in verse 30 of 1 Samuel chapter 2, Wherefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your fathers should walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, be it far from me. In other words, he had made this precious, given this gift to the family of uh, Eli's forefathers, where he said, your descendants will, will be in the priesthood forever. It's my gift to you. It's my blessing to you. But he goes, now? <laughs> that declaration, be it far from me. He goes, that's not going to be the case for you anymore. For them that honor me, I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days will come that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, that there shall not be an old man in your house. He goes on to explain the various things that will happen to his sons. But in verse 35, he says, I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left in your house shall come, and they will crouch to him, in other words, to this other member of Aaron's family, for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread, and shall say, put me, I pray you, into one of the priest's offices that I may eat a piece of bread. In other words, they would be cut off from the portion that they would eat when they served in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. They would come and beg this other family to be put back in. Well, the other family is Zadok. He is the guy who's also the co-high priest, or was co-high priest with Abiathar at this time. Now he's the sole high priest. And God had promised that he would do this. And now Solomon is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And you know what? This shows us the fourth reason that I may struggle to change. And it's because I'm not convinced God will do what he said he will do, for good or bad. Because I'm not convinced God will do what he said he will do. Abiathar thought he could just do whatever he wanted and that he'd be high priest forever. And the Lord clearly tells him here, he goes, nope, I said that your family line would be cut off, and now you are. If God's warnings aren't hitting your heart, then you need to ask yourself why. Because until you answer that question, you're going to struggle to change. Verse 28, back here in 1 Kings chapter 2, we get to the Next guy who played with fire, he's part of the conspiracy, it's Joab. Verse 28, then tidings came to Joab, for Joab had turned after Adonijah, though he turned not after Absalom. And Joab fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord, and he caught hold in the horns of the altar. The word there, tidings, it means rumors. Rumors started to cycle through to Joab. And it mentions the reason that the rumors cycled to him is because he had turned after Adonijah. He had been part of the plot. So this little aside comment that states that he had turned aside after this plot shows that there were either people who had worked with Joab in the past attempt to support Adonijah for king, or people involved in the current attempt came to him and said, the cat's out of the bag, Joab. He's already executed Adonijah, and he's removed Abiathar from the priesthood. And Joab's response shows that he is complicit this time too. Because if he had had nothing to do with this, then he'd just been like, that's old news to me. I'm not part of this anymore. I don't have anything to worry about. But instead, he flees to the tabernacle, and he grabs hold of the horns of the altar. And remember, that's what Adonijah did when he found out Solomon was king. 
And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that this action is like a, a plea for mercy because you're saying, I appeal to God to be my judge instead of you. It was a mistake, basically, is what you're saying. I didn't mean to do it, and if, if God thinks I need to be killed for this, then let God kill me here. I'm appealing to him to be my judge instead of you. And so, of course, the idea is, well, as long as I'm standing here, you can't kill me. Because I'm appealing to God as my judge, you're not my judge anymore. But if you remember, that provision in Scripture was only given to those who had inadvertently committed a crime. Any person who had premeditated the crime could not do this, and the Bible says you need to be removed, remove them from the altar and deal with them. And so Joab, <laughs> he's going to test Solomon's mettle. Let's see how far he's willing to go, because he's in on it. So, verse 29, it was told King Solomon that Joab was fled into the tabernacle of the Lord, and behold, he is by the altar. Solomon's having none of it. He sent Benaiah the son of Jehoiada saying, go, go kill him. He has no right to the altar. So, verse 30, Benaiah came to the tabernacle of the Lord and said unto him, thus says the king, come forth. Get out of there, man. You don't belong there. It's time to face the music. And he said, no, but I will die here. This is the fifth reason that you and I might struggle to change, and it's because we believe God's words don't apply to us. Well, that's true for others, but not for me. Joab decides to make this decision as difficult as possible for Solomon because he believes he's above the law. He's always believed he was above the law. That's David's whole point. It's how he treated David, and now it's how he's treating Solomon. Now, the problem when I have that mindset that I'm above God's law is that it's a fantasy world mindset, a world where I create my own rules of what's okay and what's not okay, and then I base my decisions on the standard I've created instead of God's revealed standard. And if you are struggling to change, if you've been struggling to change, you need to be honest with yourself and ask yourself if you've decided that any of God's words don't apply to you. You have to. And then you need to repent and submit yourself to His words, trusting Him instead of yourself. Now, Benaiah is kind of in a bind here. He doesn't know what to do, so he doesn't execute Joab. He's not sure how to proceed. If Joab is going to profess his innocence of conspiring with Adonijah by saying, you want to kill me, you're going to kill me right here in violation of the law, then he says, maybe Solomon jumped the gun. I need to go back and tell the king. And so verse 30, in the middle of it, it says, Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. Look at Solomon's response, verse 31. He said unto him, do as he has said and fall upon him and bury him. And you may take away the innocent blood which Joab shed from me and from the house of my father. And the Lord shall return his blood upon his own head, who fell upon two men more righteous and better than he, and slew them with the sword. My father David, not knowing thereof, that is Abner, son of Ner, captain of the host of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, captain of the host of Judah." Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his seed forever, but upon David, upon his seed, upon his house, and upon his throne shall there be peace forever from the Lord. He says, Benaiah, even if he is innocent of conspiring with Adonijah a second time, he is not an innocent man. If I don't judge him for murder, then God will hold me and my family accountable for it. And here we see the real reason why this weighed so heavily upon David in his conversation with Solomon. The real reason why he said, don't let him go to the grave, an innocent man. Don't let him go to the grave thinking and having everyone else think he's an innocent man. 
No matter how much Joab frustrated David, David wasn't being vindictive toward Joab in that final conversation. He wanted Solomon to right a wrong, a wrong that David believed would plague his line if Solomon didn't right it. You see, David knew firsthand that this is how things worked. In 2 Samuel 21, it recounts a time of famine during David's reign because of something Saul did. The reason was Saul's massacre of the Gibeonites, something that David had not dealt with. David says, I don't want that for you, Solomon, or any of my descendants. You got to deal with this. You got to deal with Joab. And so he says, go follow him because he needs to answer for these two murders. Verse 34, so Benaiah the son of Jehoiada went up and he fell upon him and slew him. And he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. And the king put Benaiah the son of Jehoiada in his room, in his position over the host, over the army. And Zadok the priest did the king put in the place of Abiathar as high priest. I think, again, it's fascinating. He just mentions about Adonijah. He's dead. Same thing with here. No big pomp and circumstance, no trial. It's just boom, he's gone. Just like that, a life of living above the law, of being your own law, finally catches up to him. Was it worth it, Joab? I don't think he thought so at that moment. Well, verse 36, we get to the last individual here. And the king sent and called for Shimei. Now, there's no reason to think that this is kind of part of like, you know, again, it's, I, I know some people like to read this chapter like a mafia movie, you know, we're going to take out all your enemies. I don't think that this is tied to the prior executions here. I don't think someone's like, all right, I got one more guy to get rid of. I don't even really think it's tied to this except from a subject matter from the writer's point of view. I don't think this is part of the conspiracy executions. I think the writer's just wrapping up how Solomon handled all the troublemakers that David had warned Solomon about. And so King sent, Solomon sent and called for Shimei. I said to him, listen, build you a house in Jerusalem, dwell there, and do not go forth uh, from there anywhere. For it shall be that on the day that you go out and you pass over the brook Kidron, that you shall know for certain that you shall surely die, and your blood shall be upon your own head. And Shimei said unto the king, the saying is good. As my lord the king has said, so will your servant do. And so Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem for many days. David had warned Solomon to keep an eye on this guy because he had said he's poking his nose around things in Jerusalem. So Solomon decides, you know what? You want to hang out in Jerusalem, buddy? Fine, you're moving here and you're under city arrest. You don't get to leave the city. You can go out to the little park down by the brook, but the minute you cross over the brook, you're a dead man. The only way I'll trust you is if I can see what you're doing, Shimei. Now, why the Kidron? Well, just past the Kidron is where Shimei used to live. That's the place where he held the most influence as a member of Saul's family. And he says, I don't want you going over there anymore. And if you do, your execution will be your own fault, not mine. And Shimei agrees to this demand. And the Bible tells us he abides by it for three years. Verse 39, it came to pass at the end of three years, he decides a situation in his life overrules the king's command. He says here that two of the servants of Shimei ran away unto Achish, son of Maacah, king of Gath. And they told Shimei, saying, Behold, your servants are in Gath. And Shimei arose, and so he saddled his donkey, went to Gath, to Achish, to seek his servants. And Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. Came back home, basically. I do find it interesting that the place he finally decides to break his commitment is by going to Gath. Gath was the same place David had fled to twice while he was on the run from Saul. It was the same kingdom that David served for a time. 
I don't think it's a coincidence that where this guy's servants flee to irk him enough to violate his promise, because he blamed David for Saul's death. Whether it was because he didn't miss facts straight, straight or he just chose not to believe the facts, he accused David of murdering Saul and Saul's sons. Well, where did Saul and his sons die? In the battle that the Philistines fought against Israel, a battle that David was supposed to be at because he was serving the king of Gath. But remember, the other Philistine lords wouldn't let him fight. So whether he thought that David was a part of that battle or not, and he was just misinformed, or he didn't care, either way, he would have no love for the king of Gath who harbored his runaways. And so he decides to break his commitment. And three years isn't so long that Shimei forgot Solomon's warning or thought, oh, the king's kind of a softy. So we ask the question, why on earth is he still crossing this literal line? I mean, God, Solomon drew a literal line in the sand. Don't cross this. Why is he doing it? Well, while Joab thought the law didn't apply to him, Shimei believed that there were circumstances that superseded God's law, which is the sixth reason you and I might struggle to change. And it's when we think that there are unique circumstances in our life that free us from needing to do what God says. It is far too frequent in my experience when sharing a scripture with someone on what God says to do in light of their situation to get a response similar to Shimei's. I know there's a line in the sand. I know God put a line in the sand, but my unique circumstances allow me to cross it. It is all too common. And if that is how I approach obedience, my spiritual growth is going to go in circles. I will remain who I am no matter how much I see the need to change. And the only solution for that is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding but in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your paths straight. Well, as one would suspect, word of Shimei's actions reached Solomon, and so Solomon confronts him, verse 41. And it was told Solomon that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and then was come back. And the king said and called for Shimei and said unto him, did not I make you to swear by the Lord? So now we see this even serious. It's not like he just said, good king, I'll, go, I'll abide by it. He swore an oath to the king. He didn't just agree to Solomon's terms. He made a promise to abide by those terms with an oath to the Lord. Did not I make you to swear an oath by the Lord? And then he says this, and protested unto you, which means he required witnesses to be present as the statement was repeated. I want you to make the oath again in front of witnesses. Okay. Saying, no, for a certain on the day that you go out and walk abroad anywhere, that you shall surely die. And you said to me, the word that I have heard is good. Why? Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment which I have charged you with? Solomon seems genuinely bothered, even baffled by this guy's actions. Why would you risk everything after you'd experienced mercy? And you know what's interesting? Shimei has no recorded answer here. It's a good question to ask if you're struggling to change. Why am I doing this when I've experienced so much mercy from God? Because the why is the answer you need to figure out. Well, in the end, for Shimei's case, Solomon shines the light on what's in his heart as the problem. Verse 44, then the king said moreover to Shimei, you know all the wickedness which your heart is privy to that you did to David my father. Therefore, the Lord shall return your wickedness upon your own head. He says, the reason you did all the things you did to my dad way back when 
is because there's a problem with your heart, Shimei, and it's a problem you have never dealt with. You see, Shimei hated David. He never wanted David's line to succeed on the throne, and he continually clung to the belief that Saul's line should be on the throne, despite the fact that God declared clearly he'd rejected Saul. Which brings us to the seventh reason I might struggle with change. I might struggle with change if I'm unwilling to accept the king that God has set up. In Shimei's case, it was David and then Solomon. In my case, it's Jesus. It's Jesus instead of me. And as long as I think I should still be king, I won't give the true king his proper respect, and I will continue to make decisions to cross the line like Shimei did. Well, in the end, Shimei's problem wasn't with David or Solomon. No matter how little he respected them, his problem was with the Lord's choice for king. And so Solomon says, the Lord's going to deal with you. He says, therefore, the Lord shall return your wickedness upon your own head. And so he says, King Solomon shall be blessed. Listen, you can hate me. You can hate my dad. You can hate our whole family. But God's going to do what God's going to do because he's the king, not you. So my family will be blessed. King Solomon shall be blessed. The throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. Nothing you can do will stop that. And so the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, which went out and fell upon him, that he died. And the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Well, it's a heavy chapter. And we've looked at a few characters here who refused to change, even to the end of their lives. Continuing to cross lines, sometimes even really foolishly. And I would just say to you tonight, as the team comes up and we're going to close out with a song, if this in any way resembles your own decision-making, I strongly urge you to learn from their failures. <laughs> I strongly urge you to look at this and go, okay, these are some guys I don't want to emulate. I strongly encourage you to ask God to show you what's going on inside your heart. Solomon shared this with Shimei before he dies, and I hope he got right with the Lord. But my hope tonight is that all of us would kind of deal with those things before we get to that spot, where we make that one really bad decision that can ruin a whole life. I encourage you to ask God to show you what's going inside your heart and, and in your mind that might keep you from changing. And then if the Lord reveals anything to you, I encourage you to repent when He does. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we look at these three individuals who experienced great mercy from the King from David first, and then even Solomon afterward. Men who deserved to die, and yet were allowed to live. And in many cases, with great privileges, with great opportunity to have a great life. So Lord, we look at our own lives now, I think to myself, God, I know what I deserved, but you've given me an amazing life. You've let me live, and not just that, but you've called me your son, you've given me all these blessings, and you've given me a good life. Lord, that's all of us here, no matter what circumstances, good or bad, might be in our lives right now. And so help us to properly respond to your mercy, to not make the mistakes that the seven mistakes these guys made that, that kept them from changing. We don't want to be those who stubbornly persist in our own way to the very end. So Lord, even now, as there might be some who you're putting your finger on something, or maybe there might be one of these points that you emphasized Lord, if you're speaking to us, we just surrender. We respond to you and say, Lord, I, I give that up. I don't want to think that way anymore, and I want to be different. Lord, for those that are making that choice, will you fill them with your spirit? 
and empower them to do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.